Welcome to the Scary Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Swinger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take in the office and help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. So we have Kendall-like e-reader license plates. What's next? Food ring license plates? That could probably save some lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stay away from the pulsing red, the car with the pulsing red license plate. Our first article is Russian meddling in 2016 presidential election was weak sauce. And this is from the register, of course, with that punchy headline. And the summary is Russian disinformation didn't materially affect the way people voted in the 2016 election. Boom. All right. Well, it's on to the next article. So, (laughs) yeah. Like enough said, it's not a big shocker when you, when you looked at the numbers and at the time and, and this, and we'll get into the numbers here for, for this study in a second, but they say that the Boffins from New York University, University of Copenhagen, Trinity College, Dublin, and the Technical University of Munich analyzed more than 700,000 social media posts in April and October of 2016. So first off, Boffins, love that term. Awesome. I had to uh, ask what it meant. I was like, what is that? Which is basically, it's a researcher or a scientist. So it's a real word, even though it sounds like it's a joke. Well, what seemed odd about that, though, is they said in April and October, not between April and October. So it's, I wonder why they only did those two months in particular. It's interesting. Must be because they only had access to that data, right? That could be. Because they talk about social media posts and not all the... Uh, it's not just Twitter or something like that. So it's stuff from several different social media outfits. But surprisingly enough, this is not the first time this kind of study has been done, nor the same outcome or realization reached. In 2018, academics from Cyprus University of Technology, the University College London, and the University of Alabama analyzed 27,000 tweets and came to the basic same conclusion. Now, in 2018, what also happened was the Internet Research Agency, LLC, and associated people and entities were indicted for conspiracy to defraud the United States government and conspiracy to commit wire fraud and bank fraud. But the charges against at least two of those companies were dropped in 2020, and nothing else seems to have been done with that indictment since then either. So it seems like after the 2018 thing had come out that the appetite seemed to have gone down for actually attempting to pursue this, realizing that they really didn't have a leg to stand on. Not to mention, it's just hard to indict people in other countries. And I, I know they're doing it mostly for symboling purposes. Right. Because they've come out with indictments for foreign nationals before. But the indictment came on the heels of a 2017 report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence that found... Putin wanted to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic processes and denigrate Secretary Clinton and harm her electability and potential presidency. And, and of course, they would have done that by informing people of her actual corruption, you know, which we can't have. You know, I think the problem with that, though, is once you start exposing all the politicians' corruptions, you run out of politicians real fast, right? Oh, dang. You're breaking my heart. <laughs> Uh, I can't think of any other job that you get that you turn into a millionaire within a couple of years than, you know, House of Representatives or Senator. Right. Well, and Eddie Murphy came to that realization in the movie, The Distinguished Gentleman. If you recall in that movie, he's a con man 
that happens to have the same name as a politician who just died. Mm. So he runs to take his seat in the Congress based on name recognition alone, and he gets there because he realizes that being a politician, you can make a ton of money, which, of course, he does. Yeah, surprise. But at the end, of course, he has a chain of heart and, you know, so on and so forth. You know, something that never happens to a politician. Oh, well, that's why it's fiction. Yeah, right. But the breakdown, what they found was that 1% of Twitter users accounted for 70% of the exposures. And most of those exposures were Republicans. Which kind of makes sense, actually, for all the all that they talk about the echo chamber and how you're shown more of the same stuff. It kind of makes sense that the anti-left tweets would be shown to mostly right-leaning folks. Right, exactly. They'd have to, uh, they'd have to pretend to be left-leaning folks first and then start twisting it, maybe? I don't know. I don't know exactly how you would work that. Well, the thing is, like before that happened, though, Republicans just love Hillary Clinton. <laughs> and, but, you know, this turned them around. <laughs> Most well-loved woman in the history of... Of Republicanism, Yes. <laughs> But during, during the, the last month of the election campaign, so in October of 2016, four posts from Russian foreign, foreign influence accounts were seen per day. 106 posts from U.S. national news and media were seen per day. And 35 posts from U.S. politicians were seen per day. So the, the Russian social media posts were just a minuscule number of exposures compared to all the other news that was out there relating to the election. Is that... Is that because they weren't productive enough? No, they didn't spend the money. If you recall the time, at, I only recall the, 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 the Facebook stuff that they were talking about. But at the time, they said that the that Internet, Internet Research Agency spent $50,000 on Facebook ads. And $50,000 is just a drop in the bucket when you're talking about an election where Trump and Hillary each spent over like a billion, billion dollars yeah. on their campaigns. $50,000, you know, that, that's like running for dog catcher or whatever. The amount of money just was not, if they were really doing that as an influence operation, they would have spent way more or should have spent way more. Unless they're completely ignorant about the amount of, amount of money they needed in order to actually have influence. I mean, this sounds this almost, the more you're talking about, the more it sounds like it, this is a test piece to see how effective it was. Like, because fifty thousand dollars on a government scale is almost nothing. So well, this also assumes that this is actually the Russian government and not just Russians uh, attempting to get clickbait uh, and make some money, make some cash off that, hmm. which is probably the more likely scenario. But the 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 paper supposes that this has actually overall been bad for the entire electoral process because this sowed doubts in the legitimacy of the tr Trump presidency, which also opened the door for the same kind of doubts of voter fraud in the 2020 election. And to quote the article, in a word, Russia's foreign influence campaign on social media may have had its largest effect by convincing Americans that its campaign was successful. And this makes absolutely no sense. So, because what they're effectively saying is that the campaign to influence the election failed to influence the election, but convinced Americans that the failed campaign succeeded. Because what they're trying to say is the Russians are so devious that even when they fail, it succeeded. You know, this is reminiscent of the stuff about the Soviet juggernaut who was going to conquer all of Europe in the 80s until it totally collapsed in on itself in, in, at the end of the decade. Well, you got to have enemies. That's the best way to... 
it's the best way to keep a country, keep a group together is to have somebody else you can point at and say they're the other. Right. There's a, there's a, I believe it was in John T. Flynn's book, As We Go Marching, where he says, you know, it's not important to have a hero, but it's absolutely critical to have an enemy. Or I'm yeah. paraphrasing, but something along those lines. No, that makes sense. Yeah, because nothing, nothing gets people together more than fear. Or, or something that everyone can, can, can hate. Yep. You know, that's why I have the two-minute hate in 1984. You know, so people can focus their, their, their anger on. But, you know, based on these findings and what I understood about the whole thing beforehand, I thought these, these researchers actually had their shit together. But I don't think so. I think the most successful piece was getting us to talk about it. And we've certainly talked about it for longer than it's gone on. And I think we've convinced ourselves that they were way more effective than they were. So in terms of sowing fear, that seems pretty effective. Well, the thing is, I think if they were to properly phrase this, what they really would say is that the American government and their bitches in the media succeeded where the Russians failed <laughs> in undermining U.S. elections. Because really, if they, if the media and the government had hyped, had not hyped on the possibility or this threat of Russian interference, it would have gone completely unnoticed and no one would have bothered with that at all. It's the fact that the government, the American government said the Russians are in our election knickers and the media would not start harping on it, that this is, that it came to prominence. And, and really the whole reason for that anyway, was to have a, an excuse to delegitimize Trump's election. Because you couldn't have that Trump actually got elected by because through the world people you had to have you had to say that the Russians interfered. Well, I mean, technically, he was elected by what the will of the people of like thirty percent, like every other president recently. <laughs> the number well, of people that don't vote. actually, if you break down the numbers based on U.S. population and the voting population, and then the people who actually vote, an American president is elected. Any any American president is only elected with twenty percent of the country voting so, for them. Yep. But they all have a mandate, let me tell you. Yeah, ever since City Roosevelt said they did. <laughs> but their their ultimate conclusion from this entire paper is that it didn't work this time, but man, we have to be on the lookout so it doesn't work next time. So about your about your thing getting their shit together, I had a comment there that I totally missed. I heard an interesting argument against meritocracy the other day that basically said kind of the same thing. That if if meritocracy works and the best people are put into the best the positions where they can best use their talents, you know, like politicians and CEOs and stuff like that, then why are things still this crappy? Uh, like why do like for example, if you know they really and obviously the answer is is that this is not really meritocracy that it's being misused by people and we're electing politicians for the wrong qualities you know how likable are they how much do people cheer how much money do they raise instead of actual qualities like ability to govern so i, I know that that was kind of a kind of a shitty argument on my side but i do find it interesting no i don't think it's a shitty argument at all because really if you were to take the campaign statements from the majority of politicians actually probably all politicians and said okay they pledged that they would do these things and actually looked at their outcomes, the outcomes would not match up against what they say they're going to do. <laughs> so they aren't, that's, that's not merit because if the merit were substantial, you know, if they, if they merited that position, then they're, they would actually be successful at doing the things they said they, that they were going to do. So the only reason they get into the office is because of what they say, not what they actually do. Yeah. Now there's a rule of thumb that says, you know, if they, 
whatever the good things they promise to do, they're not going to do. And whatever horrible things they're going to do, you can be certain they'll double down on. What is this? What is democracy falls apart when you realize you can just elect yourself a raise? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the bottom line for this is that, you know, not everything you hear in the news is reality. Uh, and if you think the government and the media are smarter than you, no, they're not. They're stupider and you shouldn't believe a word they say. And this actually leads right into the next article. <laughs> so the next article, as David alluded, is a fifth of passwords used by a federal agency cracked in security audit. For instance, from Ars Technica, a recently published security audit of the Department of Interior showed that 21% of the passwords protecting network accounts were weak enough to be cracked using standard methods. Oh, boy. Nice. <laughs> So inspector general of the department conducted the audit and what they did was they got the hashes for 85,940 AD accounts. Then they used a rainbow table of 1.5 billion words and 21% of those accounts is 18,174 of which 288 were admin accounts, 362 belonged to senior government employees and 16%. Is that 16% of 21% or is that 16% no, of No, 16% total. Total. We're cracked in 90 minutes. Right. So only it took over 90 minutes for 5%. Yeah. So 89 of high value assets at the 25 out of 28 of assets at this agency did not use multi-factor authentication. <sighs> And they have a list of the most commonly used passwords and declining frequency. The number one password at the agency was password, capital P, dash, one, two, three, four. I mean, I guess it's better than just password, one, two, three. And the uh, 478. Yeah. Well, one guys. by one character. So yeah, that did increase the brute force factor on it. <laughs> That's why it took 90 minutes and not five. Well, actually, <laughs> these top 10, I bet were, were cracked in less than a minute. Yeah, that could be. They don't add up to that much. They don't, They definitely don't add up to 16,000. It looks like there's about 2,000 here in this list. Yeah, and, so. if you, and the thing is, that the, these numbers, the 21% was were cracked and you know 16% in, in 90 minutes are mm -hmm. basically irrelevant when you look at these top 10 passwords that were cracked. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Because if one of these were an admin password, you're done. You crack that and you, you don't even bother with the rest. Yeah. So you know, what's interesting, so. what's interesting about these is five of these are some variation of password one, two, three, or password one, two, three, four. Yep. You know, one's got a dollar sign, one has the password after the numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Some of these, two of them are say have change it, change it now, change it one, two, three. So those are almost certainly IT help desk password. One of them is Summer Sun 2020, also an IT help desk password, almost certainly. I'm, I'm sure all of you guys have heard of the, you know, you put the year and the and the, the, the season and then an exclamation mark or something. But there's two of these that are kind of weird. The number two is Bronco 2012. And that's on 300. That was used in 389 accounts. That is weird. That's got to be somebody's default password that they put on like all their service accounts or something. Because 389 is a lot for Bronco 2012. I, you know, I actually think you're probably right with that because if they've been doing that since 2012, that's how you accumulated 389 of those accounts. Yeah, maybe. Like one administrator, like whenever he creates an account, that's what he just uses so he can remember it, so he doesn't have right. to remember it. Yeah. And the other weird one is Orlando underscore 0000, which I think is kind of the same thing. Yeah, which is 160, 160. of those. Yeah, or, may, or actually maybe they let... It's possible they may let their IT help desk folks create the passwords 
And maybe each IT help desk person uses a different default password so they don't have to remember it. And what yeah, we're seeing here is we're seeing each one of these numbers is actually a different IT help desk guy. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I've talked to account folks before and attempted to convince them to use a password, random password generator for their default passwords that they assigned to new accounts or whatever, rather than something along this kind of standard thing. Because there are a lot, I mean, the, the web is full of, of generators that you can create a a decent random password without having to use the some formula like these. Because if you look at it, all these top 10 passwords, I would say 80% of these are probably the default password that a help desk gives a user or assigns to a new account. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Which means that nobody has changed. There's, they're not forcing password changes for new passwords or yeah. new accounts. Well, you'll notice it says change it now. I mean, that is... <laughs> So, so it's just thing. implied, you know, no reason to technically <laughs> enforce that. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, a, there's a lesson there though, right? Like if you can't actually force a user to do something, you can't rely on them to actually do it. And also that users aren't entirely to blame because IT was handing out these passwords to begin with, and they also did not force the passwords to change. So this is not entirely on the users per se, <laughs> as far as how bad this is. I mean, but we can still blame them, right? Well, of course. I always, I always would rather blame IT than than users, simply for for the fact that IT people really they know better, and users are just trying to get their jobs done. They're not focused on this kind of thing and and the the, the detrimental outcome of of being able to have your password cracked. They aren't thinking about that. I guess. But the IT people should be. And if you look at these passwords, of course, they met AD requirements. Twelve <laughs> characters. Yeah. At least three of the four character types of upper lowercase digits, special characters. But what was something kind of struck me as odd in the in the paper was that it said 99.9% met the criteria, which means 0.01% didn't. So how many characters is that? Or how many passwords is that? And how did they get and them in why? there if AD was requiring it? Right. That's kind of weird. And that kind of, when I was thinking about it, I was figuring those passwords may have been set before the criteria was put in place and they were not set to expire. So no one had to go in and change the password, which meant they never had to update the password to meet the password criteria. So those passwords were probably ancient and even worse than what you're seeing here. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so the password cracking system was two rigs. Each had eight GPUs. So these were not huge machines. So these were These were moderately expensive, a GPU. Depending on what size you get, it's pretty expensive. They were running multiple open source containers and they were varying the numbers of GPUs that they were assigning to the task. And to the surprise of no one, the auditors also faulted the department, nicked it for failing to change passwords every 60 days. Surprise. That was their key takeaway. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And so why, okay. So why does this matter? Well, password complexity alone does not endure a strong, does not create a strong password. As mentioned, the vast majority of these met the requirements of AD, and yet were still cracked in 90 minutes or less. And some of them that still may appear to be a stronger password, such as the Bronco dollar sign 2012, it still isn't working out because it's using common substitution, zero for O. It's still using a dictionary word. It's using a date. It's a lot of things that are pretty normal to try out when you're building a password. So what should you do about it? 
strong, randomly generated password that's unique for every account and change it only when there's a reason to believe it might be compromised. The latest guidance is not to change it every 60 days or every six weeks or whatever. Make it longer, make it stronger. And that sounds like that's an advertisement for something. <laughs> I was like, did we get a sponsor? <laughs> All right. Anyways. Uh, no. But, you know, as long as your password is not in a rainbow table or previously compromised, the main factor to consider for your password is length, you know, to increase the search space. There'll be a couple of links in the show notes to an old XKCD, as well as the Gibson Research Corporation, Steve Gibson's site, discussing the password haystacks concept. Yeah. I don't know about you, but at this point in time, I'm only remembering two passwords. I'm remembering the password to my work computer. Three passwords, password to my work computer, password to my work, you know, password generation thing. And then my personal a password generation thing. And that's it. Like, uh, I don't have to remember 10 passwords. I don't have to remember 12 passwords. I have to remember three passwords. And I have them written all down if anybody want to break, break into my house. Because the threat model for people that break into your house is not the same threat model as people who try to break into your accounts and computers. Although, who knows? That might change in the near future. Yeah, you never know break into the house specifically for the passwords. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a theme of a lot of spy movies. Well, I don't know about a lot of spy movies, but that's basic concept for <laughs> spy movies. All right. For a third article, researchers can track GPS location of all of California's new digital license plates. I did not know that California got cool new digital license plates. I'm a little bit jealous, although it is California, so. Well, they don't come for free. <laughs> that's true. California launched the option to buy digital license plates last year in 2022 near the end from a company called Reviver, who is the sole provider. And security researchers managed to gain super administrative access into Reviver. <laughs> super administrative access? Administrative wasn't quite enough. I, I don't know. That's the, that's the way they couched it in the article. <laughs> so, quote, an actual attacker could remotely update, track, or delete anyone's Reviver plate. That seems pretty bad. It's interesting that the headline is track the GPS location. Yeah, I think, you know, that seems to be the least problematic when basically you can completely alter that plate, change the plate number or anything like that. And imagine when this, when this gets implemented in more states, you can change which state your, your, your plate's in even. Yeah. No, this sounds awesome for criminals. Oh, this is going to be a headache. I'm pretty sure. Interesting. Because, you uh, know, one of the things that they, that, well, let's get into that. I got, I got a whole bunch of stuff we'll talk about here in a minute before I get too much into that. But. So, okay. So customers can pay between 20 and $25 a month for a battery or a wired powered version of the plate, which they say this is a five year or 50,000 miles worth of battery life. What does the miles have to do with how long the battery lasts? I guess it's only on when the car is turned on. No, because cops would have to be able to, well, the way e-ink yeah. works is... Yeah, it's still on there when you turn it off is, your my Kindle. Yeah, it only requires power when it changes. Yeah, so the the, the mileage thing here makes no sense to me. I, well, I think what they're saying is that's the way they're they are putting their warranty on it, saying that we're guaranteeing that the battery is going to work for five years or fifty thousand miles. I think it's just a standard. I think it's a standard car warranty type thing, which is why they couch it in these terms. It's dumb because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So what's interesting is I've noticed that online, so it says that you know, they're $20 here, but when I did a search for this, they found the first thing that came up said that you could buy it for $150. But then when I click through 
to the site. It went to the to the rent model. So I don't think this is at twenty bucks a month for five years. You're be you're paying what two hundred forty a year times five is twelve hundred dollars for this license plate. A Kindle is a hundred dollars. This license plate yeah. is like a hundred bucks worth of screen. Yeah, I I think there's probably a discount for paying the entire rental fee up front. Yeah, you can pay and then maybe what uh, that hundred dollars was. You can pay two hundred and fifteen dollars for the year instead of two hundred and forty if you pay it ahead of time. No, this is this is a ripoff. I wish that I thought of this because this is going to make somebody so much money. Well, I think we probably should see who owns this sole source contract for all of California. Reviver? Yeah, Newsom's brother-in-law or something. But users can digitally update the lower section of their plate to display any text message they want. Oh, yes. No, this was created by a guy named Neville Boston. No, sounds legit. Not <laughs> like his name was made up or pulled out of an Agatha Christie novel. Is that is Neville Boston from an Agatha Christie novel? No, it just sounds ludicrous. Oh, That's okay. All. Neville Boston. So I'm curious. I'm actually curious about that because that's one of those things. So when you get a custom license plate, you've got to get it approved by the state. Yep. So with this license, with this message on the bottom, does that go through state sensors as well, or is it completely, is it completely up to you from your you know app or something? Well, it says that you can change the message via your app. I don't know if they have filters on the app to say, hey, well, you can't use profanity on there or something like that. I want this so badly now. I don't even care that it's a ripoff. <laughs> oh. Well, you can move out to California and for the low, low price. I can't afford to live in California. Well, no one can. Yeah, I need three jobs like the one I have. But uh, as we mentioned a second ago, the app on the, you know, you get a mobile app that accompanies a plate that allows you to to make changes. The app can also tell you if your car's been moved <laughs> and then if it's been moved it'll tell you hey your car's been stolen and then it'll display the text of stolen so when your car gets towed <laughs> it's also gonna say hey your car was stolen and let you know yeah you can remotely change it to like pull me over as the license plate does it so when you hmm see but you can't change the license plate number the user can't change that they can only change the well unless part. you get the super user account Oh, yeah. Uh, We're going to talk about that, though. Yep. You know, and they're talking about, you know, because it's it's a computer, rolling out feature updates with it, you know, automatic toll payments. So that's going to be a toll transponder to parking payments, roadside assistance, vehicle diagnostics. I don't understand the existence of having it as a toll. Like, you can do automatic license plate recognition now. Why do we have a separate toll thing? Why not just do everything with automated license plate recognition? Yeah. And enroll your plate in the, in the well, when you, when you buy one of those transponders, you got to tell them what your license plate number is. <laughs> I know. And then when the transponder doesn't work, you know, not that I've had that happen three oh, times yeah. in the last five years, you have to call them up and you have to pay with credit card. I'm yeah. like, you have my, I had to give you my license when I gave you the transponder, you know who I am. Take it out of my account. They're like, we can't do that. You need to pay with credit card. Yep. <sighs> the government efficiency at its best. I don't think the toll roads government efficiency. I mean, I don't think the the dullest toll roads the one I use. I don't think that's owned by the government, is it? I thought it was sold off to some Australian consortium. Well, when you buy the Easy Pass, you buy that from a government agency. Oh, okay. So <laughs> that may be different since they updated the the, uh, the HOV when they when they expanded it and put all the new technology in it. But I have to look at it again. But I'm pretty sure that the it, at least who issues the the easy pass is the government. You know, it's part of the 
socialized cost privatized oh, model. Yeah, copyright 2017, Virginia Department of Transportation. That gave them the ability to track me. Huh. On purpose. Not that they couldn't do it anyways, but surprise. Yeah, yeah. So the way that they were the 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 researchers were able to 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 get this figured out is they were digging around the website and found that there was a reviver role when they attempted to manage their user account, which crashed, crashed their, the login or something like that. So they figured that that reviver role is allowed administrative access since it wasn't authorized through the user portal. So they changed their user role in the app to this reviver role, and that gave them access to basically everything to make any of the API calls needed to the plate. So they could view the vehicle's location, they could up the view, update the vehicle plates, add new users to the account, and perform the action using the super, any action the super user account was able to do. And of course, Reviver thanks the researchers and they told Motherboard that they patched, patched all the issues. Fixed, we're good. Fixed, we're good. Yeah, exactly. I think this whole thing is terrible. I mean, really, other than you, Matt, I was trying to figure out who's going to pay, you know, between like two hundred and a thousand dollars a year, so they can change a tiny text message on their plate. Uh, you know, it is really small to express is, how they feel. It is almost completely unreadable, which is probably why they're not checking to see because nobody's going to be able to read it anyways. Certainly not from any kind of distance. No. So you're only really displaying that for people in stop and go traffic in the parking lot to tell and them how great say, you are or whatever your express whatever kind of desire you're expressing there. Yeah, it's basically going to say, get off my Are you? Why are you up in me? One I've thing got that, a lot of cussing to get rid of in this episode. <laughs> but one thing that, that, that seems weird to me is that when you get a license plate, a physical license plate now, your plate doesn't change. It's stamped into the metal, literally. Yeah, and you can you keep it for years and years. It's not like you have a license plate for six months. You can keep it for the life of your car if, as long as you keep renewing it. Right. So why... Is the license plate number itself changeable on the plate? You know, if it's not supposed to change, why make it so it's changeable? Um, I don't know. I don't have that answer other than it's going to allow some really cool, some really cool things later. Well, and if it's changeable from the user's app, then that also means that the company could change it. It's not the DMV that's controlling the plate number. So why is that not, you know, why is the DMV not in control of changing that? But I mean, they the, might still be in charge of changing that just at a remotely. But again, I, I still don't understand why. It doesn't make any sense. Well, if the, if, the, if the role that allows the plate number to be changed is Reviver, and they got that information from the corporate site, from the corporation, that would indicate that the, the corporation is what is actually managing that and you could change it if you broke into the company. You could do that to anybody's license plate. Yes, factually true. Yeah. Right. So, but on the on the upside, you know, spies are not going to have to buy rotating license plates anymore. No, nope. think of all the money this is going to save the government. Yep, exactly. And if you want to ride for free in the HOV, that's not a problem. You just set your plate to that of some other schmo with the same make and model and color of car. And you're good to go. You'd ride all day long for free because that guy's going to get a bunch of letters in, in, in three weeks. <laughs> I, that says, you know what? Hey, you violated HOV. <laughs> you know what? This is going to 100% be a market opportunity for some criminal to create an app that's going to be able to tie into their plate and just change it to whatever they want. 
Right. The, so on this, the black this is entrepreneurship side. in action. Because you know what they what, what they what they mention here is you know issues with the app and issues with the corporate website. What they don't mention is that you have physical access to the plate, so you could just break into the plate physically. You know, physically connect to it, probably figure this out, and then every time you want to do this, you wouldn't even need the app. You just plug a cable into you know your soldered on USB connector change your plate number or whatever, and then move on. And if you set, and because it's e-ink, if you, once you set it, if you, the assumption would be that this plate has got some kind of Wi-Fi connection to it or something, a cell connection or something, right? So if you were to set the plate and then break the cell antenna, presumably they wouldn't be able to change your plate either. So there wouldn't be any messing with your plate. I mean, this is just an all around terrible idea. And I, and I'm, can't believe that they're letting this company manage the plates, that this is not actually at the DMV, where the company gives the software to the DMV or sells the software to the DMV and the DMV are managing it. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. It does seem kind of silly. But this is, if this takes off, it's going to be bad, I mm -hmm. think. No, right now the government is tracking you via your cell phone, but they'll be tracking you via your license plate now, or, the, or they won't even need their license plate reading cameras anymore because they'll be tracking you on this thing. I mean, again, think of the efficiency. The government's going to save so much money. Because the cops won't need to read your license plate anymore because they could have that plate transmit the, the plate number to the cop cars. And, and eventually you get to the point now where well, not now, but you'll eventually get to the point where you won't even get a license plate. They'll just, your car will just transmit some kind of identifier to the cops, like in the fifth element. Uh, because if this really takes off before, you know, down that path, what they'll do first is every car you buy would just come with one. And then once people accept that, then they'll roll down to the, down the path of not bothering to include a plate at all. It just is built in the car to transmit your, your details out. And it's my expectation would be, it's not just going to be the plate number they transmit. Oh yeah. The last, your location for the last X number of. Well, and everything about you from your driving record or whatever the government has on file for your name, whoever's the car's registered to. Yeah. I mean, yep. all your horrible. tickets, all of your. Parking tickets, you know, your voter registration, your height, weight, physical description, if I have it, you know, whatever the government has on you, that'll be in your in transmit to the cops via this thing eventually but we what you can do about it is simply not buy this crap so it dies on the vine because really what you're doing is you're paying to be subjugated you know pay your thousand dollars so a year cool. and that's how they get you this is how the world ends i mean because i mean the promise of this technology this kind of technologies is awesome you know part of me is sad that i have to be so terrified of it because it could be really cool like the whole idea of an electric car if everybody had an electric car, you wouldn't even need stoplights anymore because traffic would simply adjust in order to allow cars through at a proper timing. You know, traffic wouldn't even be an issue anymore because traffic would never stop like it does now because all cars would know the speed of other cars and they would adjust their speed. When a new car comes on, they would automatically make a space for it and traffic would just flow. I mean, the upside to this kind of technology is fantastic. The downside is government sucks and they will use it to turn you into a slave. Corporate drone. So that's the upside. Sounds great.
When do we start? They've started, started. obviously. (laughs) Sorry. All right. So the last article is insurance company launches first ever cyber catastrophe bond, which seems about right. And this comes to us from Gizmodo. And the London-based insurance company Beasley announced the launch of the first ever catastrophic bond for cyber security insurance. And the whole purpose for the bond is to basically backstop insurance companies in a in the case of a particularly harmful event. In the past, this has been like acts of God, which would completely devastate an insurance company where, you know, a tornado goes through the trailer park where your insurance company has all their clients and basically would bankrupt the insurance company. They would have a bond, a catastrophic bond to backstop that. Now, this in this particular instance, what they have is a $45 million bond that would cover the company's expenses in the event that the cost from insuring the client's needs exceed the threshold of $300 million. So if that threshold, you know, if the event occurred, the threshold was meant, then instead of the bond paying out the bondholders, they would pay out to Beasley instead. But of course, the bond is not going to cover a state-sponsored cyber tax. So yeah. that whole act of war clause that, you know, Lloyds of London put in place came kind of thing. So what's interesting is we looked at that cost of cyber attacks and the vast majority of cyber attacks cost what in the 6 million range, 7 million range, but they scale with the number of records. So there were some in there that they mentioned that were in the hundreds of millions of records and cost in the hundreds of millions of dollars, but the vast majority of cyber attacks should not come even close to this. Yeah, I would not think so. At least I should say incidents that target a single company. And we'll talk a little more about that in a minute. Or are we talking about that now? Uh, well, no, we're talking about we're that, at your, that That's your oh. Connecticut law journal. <laughs> uh, all right. So, and, and in a comparison, I also heard a podcast recently from Lawfare, which is one of David's favorite venues, where one of the authors of an article in the Connecticut Law Journal was arguing for a federal insurance backstop against state-sponsored or massive attacks that are so disruptive that they would bankrupt the insurance industry. I brought it up when we discussed these, and I looked at it, and it's 84 pages long. It's hardly yeah, an article. Brief read. <laughs> brief read. Yeah. We woo, we didn't have time to didn't have time to read over that. The whole issue is actually on ransomware and cyber and cyber insurance, which I do find kind of interesting. But the shortest article in there is 35 pages. But of course, these are lawyers. They're probably paid by the hour to write it. Yeah, and they're probably speaking law- lawyer terms. So yep, yep. So uh, ten words when one would do. Right. Exactly. Uh, ten so, Latin well, ten Latin words where where what English word would do. <laughs> So, but the short version is just what I said. They're arguing the government should create a backstop. And his example was an attack against power substations that brings down power for an entire region of the U.S. And then the insurance companies can't pay out because they can't afford to. So it remains without electricity and power for an extended period of time, which in some ways is kind of like when a hurricane hits in an area, you know, geographically limited, but it takes out everything in that geographic area. Well, I I think that's not a great example because one thing there aren't, taking into account, which is different from a hurricane, is the ransomware crews, they want to get paid. You know, and they research these companies and they know who they're insured by and how much insurance they're, they're going to cover. And if the insurance company can't pay it, the crew is going to drop their, their asking offer because they want the money. They'll take $1 million over over nothing versus asking for 10 or nothing. You know, it's not an all or nothing for them. So they're like, well, if you give us, don't give us $10 million, even though you, you don't even have the money to give us, then... We're just going to let it go. 
there could, I mean, there are entire organizations that do the negotiations with ransomware crews and kidnapping crews for the same purpose to actually get the, it down to an agreeable amount for both sides. This idea that they, that, that the ransomware crew is going to say, give us $10 million or, or, or else. And the insurance company not being able to come up with that 10 million and the consumer crew say, well, we asked for 10 million and not negotiating is ridiculous. So I think that's a specious argument. Well, but hold on. Remember here, he's not necessarily talking about ransomware gangs. He's talking about APT attacks, government attacks. Well, that wouldn't be covered by the bond bond in this case. But if that's the case, no, you're right. it Actually, doesn't matter right. about the insurance are. ability to pay then because yeah. no amount of money is going to get is going to handle that. Well, and, and the argument that he brings up here, because my first thought in relation to this was kind of flood insurance. And I think flood insurance is a terrible idea because it just encourages people to keep rebuilding in a flood zone. Yeah. Cause they but, are not bearing the risk. Yeah. But he, in the, in the podcast, he actually makes a better connection to the terrorist law that was passed after nine 11. And the apparently after it's funny, I had never heard of this at the time, although I was fairly young. So maybe this just wasn't on my radar. But apparently the insurance impact of 9-11 was 50% larger than the previous largest disaster, Hurricane Andrew. According to Wikipedia, the total losses were somewhere north of 30 billion, the largest being business interruption at 11 billion, property at 9.6 billion, and liability at 7.5 billion. So just those together is some around 28 billion. And then there are some other, apparently it did not bankrupt the industry, but the insurance industry would no longer insure against terrorist attacks. And I don't know, that's what I got off Wikipedia. I don't know how true it is, but the guy on the podcast also said that the construction industry was partially paralyzed for large buildings that may be targets of terrorist attacks because apparently they needed that insurance and they would refuse to build without that insurance. So the government had to step in and pass a law that would backstop for terrorist attacks specifically. Well, they should pay for the whole thing because terrorist attacks occur because of the activities of the U.S. government. If the mm -hmm. U.S. government was not inciting terrorism, then these, these companies would not be vulnerable to terrorist attacks. Yeah, you know, without that, without whatever the heinous things the government are doing, which incites this, their risk to terrorism is basically zero. So they should pay for the whole shebang in that respect. Hmm. That's interesting because that actually kind of goes with the APT stuff too, right? Generally speaking, the APT stuff, although I guess it depends on who you're looking at because the like North Korea's APT is looking for cash. But again, they're doing it because the government, the US government is helping to. Well, they've, they've sanctioned the shit out of them and they can't right. function as a normal country. Yeah. Otherwise, they could trade and they could make profit some other way. I mean, that's really the, the reason that North Korea is so hell-bent on cryptocurrency theft and things of that nature. Yeah, so it still seems like it kind of falls into the same thing then. But the ATP stuff, that's act of, that would be an act of war if they're attacking a, a corporation because of... It's kind of like the concept of during World War II where you have the concept of total war, which means the entire country is at war with you, not just as military. So you bomb the entire country to demoralize them and destroy their... So they cannot support the government in the government's war effort. You know, if you look at it from an ATP perspective, they would attack a company, ransomware the entire thing or encrypt the entire thing, and then just throw away the key as an act of war, because they're trying to do in the technical sense, 
rather than a physical sense of carpet bombing. So I think that's a, that's a different scenario than something like terrorism, in which case insurance companies have never paid out in, for acts of war. And this, that would, that would be the same kind of concept anyway, in which case the government would not need to backstop them because the insurance company would never pay. The company would just have to suck up the loss. But the problem with the whole idea about the government backstopping this is once the government gets involved, well, actually, let me take a step back. So a point that's made in that article or the law journal or whatever is that the government isn't agile enough and shouldn't make specific prescriptive regulations around things like 2FA create a higher, they should create a higher level framework to let the insurance companies worry about the specific InfoSec requirements because they can be more agile. But the problem with that is once the government gets involved, they are going to have to dictate those kinds of things to protect their, to, to protect their quote unquote investment. And as and a simple example of this is bank robberies. So bank robberies are federal crime for one reason. They are protecting their investment in the FDIC and NCOA who is the insurance for bank accounts. You know, if, if your money gets stolen from a bank and it's under $250,000 now, the FDIC will make you whole and provide you that $250,000. And because the, the federal government is paying that, that makes bank robberies and the investigation of bank robberies federal crimes versus local crimes like the theft of a liquor store or something like that. So once they get their hands in this backstopping insurance companies, they are going to feel compelled to dictate all sorts of things to insurance companies and the businesses that the insurance companies are insuring to ensure that they don't ever have to pay out on this bond or to minimize the possibility that they'll have to pay out on a bond or, or backstop the insurance companies, however you want to put it. So the whole thing is terrible, terrible idea. But this catastrophic bond thing, is, I think, is great. It's a, it's a, it's a market solution to the problem to insure or not insure necessarily, but to promote insurance companies still offering cyber insurance to organizations that need it. I think this is a good step and part of the natural maturity process for cyber insurance in general. All right. So why does this matter? If insurance companies have this to fall back on, then they'll be more likely to continue to offer cyber insurance. So we've definitely been seeing a lot of articles in this last year that insurance is getting more expensive because insurers misjudge the risk and this may help them out there. Yep, exactly. But that is it for articles for today. Thanks for joining us and join and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.